Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. Gabrielle holds a PhD in human nutrition, food, and exercise from Virginia Tech and is a former assistant professor of exercise science at Georgia Gwinnett College. On top of that, she's also a Renaissance periodization coach, an ISSN certified sport nutritionist, and an ACE certified health coach. And one of the many things that makes Gabrielle so special is that she combines her knowledge of nutrition with motivational interviewing techniques to bring about long-term weight management and healthy lifestyles in her clients. Although we rarely think about it, diet culture is responsible for some major atrocities like distorting people's body image and inadvertently promoting very unhealthy relationships with food or even eating disorders. It's not surprising that an anti-diet movement arose to oppose diet culture and not surprisingly, the anti-diet movement has come to be ridiculed by that very same pro-diet camp. I know originally I didn't give much credit to non-weight loss approaches, approaches to diet, at least before I learned more about them. I think it's very easy to form strong, exclusive opinions when we base those opinions on limited evidence or when we get emotionally involved in a particular idea or philosophy. And that seems to be particularly prevalent in the world of nutrition. Gabrielle is one of the few people I've seen speak in public in an unbiased way about the pro and anti-diet camps. And that's why I wanted to speak with her today, because I feel it's a conversation that many people in the world of nutrition can really, really benefit from. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it, because I know I learned so much from Gabrielle. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting that like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to other people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, maybe a nutritionist or a coach or someone interested in this whole area of nutrition, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some help to them. So on to this conversation with Gabrielle, let's talk science. Gabrielle, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I am very, very good. Really, really looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think it's one that um, probably a lot of people are thinking about, and um, it's sort of in the messy middle, and it's a difficult one to actually talk about. The, the messy middle, uh, I, I, I like that because um, I, I think when we get into this conversation, people will understand what we mean by that, but um, I, I, I like that. I prefer being in the messy middle. Uh, that sounds terrible, actually. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so Gabrielle. Um, just for anybody who may not be familiar with you, um, would you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction um, as to, to who you are, how you got into nutrition, and kind of your career path to where you are right now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, sort of a long story, but I started out in academia. So I um, have a background in exercise science um, and then knew that I wanted to become a professor. So I went on to um, do my doctorate in the area of gut microbiome and then 
um, because I wanted to be a, an effective professor, I wanted to be, you know, a, a helpful teacher. Um, I did a two-year fellowship in um, the scholarship of teaching and learning, and so I focused more on um, uh, learning theories, behavior change, motivation. Um, came out of that um, and taught for four years as an assistant professor of exercise science. And in my fourth year, I was recruited uh, by Renaissance Periodization to be an RP coach. Um, did that for about, uh, I left academia, um, resigned, you know, went to coaching full time. Then um, within a year, I started my telehealth business as well. So now I am dual um, uh, coach in consulting and, and coaching for RP via email. And then I run Vitamin PhD Nutrition, um, which is telehealth uh, coaching um, so, and then, you know, fast forward to, to this year, um, collaborated with Shannon to start on that, the Bridging the Gap series and, um, start to establish, um, you know, our, our creative endeavor of the comprehensive coaching framework. We've brought Dan Feldman on as another collaborator and we've gotten some really good feedback from other practitioners. So we're going to start, you know, um, uh, garnering their feedback and, and, and sort of modifying as we go and, um, and yeah, hang out in that, in that gray area, you know, trying to, to improve the dialogue in the industry and, and, you know, bring practitioners together um, so that we can have a, a productive conversation rather than sort of like yelling across this, this perceived divide. So, so that, that's one thing that I, I, I think is going to be really, really key to this, conversation that we're going to have today so one you've got a really really varied background you know we're, we're talking about academia but you're also in now you're more involved in the coaching side you're also involved in the psychological side let's say of coaching whereby you know i think previously or, or you know up to quite recently it was very very common for somebody who is a nutritionist or a nutrition coach to be considered somebody who would just you know give somebody a diet plan or a set of calories and say okay this is what you do best of luck but there's obviously a lot more that goes into it uh, than that, and there's a lot of behavior change involved. Um, and on top of that, you're 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 also quite vocal on, let's say, some of the issues in nutrition that often, like you said, can or cause um, problems with communication between different different sides. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have you on again because, uh, you know, you were actually uh, my second guest that I ever had on the podcast uh, all the while back. And we were talking about a very, very different subject. We were talking yeah. about uh, the gut microbiome. Um, and I think it's really cool to have you on for something completely different um, because uh, I think it, within, nutri- within human beings, actually, just love something that's polarizing. And that is definitely true in, in nutrition as well. Um, and... I think we've seen recently, uh, in, in the past decade, uh, the, let's say, the growth of what would be considered the anti-diet movement, okay? Mm-hmm. And for there to be an anti-diet movement, they obviously need to be counter to something else, or uh, they need to be anti-something, so they need to be anti-diet a movement or a pro-diet movement um, or a traditional diet and culture. And just to kind of set up this conversation, I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about what, what, what exactly do we mean by diet and culture and what do we mean by this anti-diet movement that has kind of arisen against it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to just be super transparent that I am not, uh, you know, an anthropologist and, and um, you know, or a member really of either 
camp. Um, I'm sure that I, I think at this point I might be labeled as either one by the opposing side just because I'll talk about, you know, I, I see things like, oh, you know, let's talk about the context behind diets don't work. Or let's talk about how useful it is to say calories in versus calories out. Um, and and in, in reading and trying to figure out, you know, what, what are the meanings of the word diet? What's the meaning of, of diet culture or anti-diet culture? I found that it is, um, you know, there are kind of two aspects. I think, I think one of them really is more of a, of a social justice movement. When we're looking at the influence of marketing around diet and how that is delivered to and how it's perceived by people of different cultures and ethnicities um, and how, you know, it highlights uh, racial inequality and, dis and health disparities. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other side is the more maybe practical side of, you know, how is marketing around diet and body image, um, just how does that affect the way that we interact with food and, and exercise and how we perceive ourselves? Um, so there, it's, it's sort of um, a, a huge, all-encompassing term that probably means many different things to different people. But the common threads that I've seen have been that we attach some moral value. So there's a, a, a moralistic um, approach to foods, to exercise, and to body size. And that what we tend to do, so, so part of the um, diet culture, and, and you know, that can even be a polarizing term, because again, it's one that we sort of create so that we can have a movement against it, that diet culture puts forward the idea or the, the belief that smaller bodies are better than larger bodies and that some foods are good and other foods are bad and that um, there's also this sort of meritocratous belief that if a person has uh, a larger body, that that's a bad thing and that they have done that to themselves and that we can have thin bodies, we can have small bodies as long as we work hard enough. It's just energy expenditure and intake, just calories in versus calories out. Um, so it's this sort of, you know, we can, we, we stratify people um, in terms of like human quality based on their body size and based on their, their dietary patterns. Um, that seems to be like the common thread that I see when, I, when I'm looking at authors writing about diet culture. But it seems like it's fairly new in terms of like an academic thing. I mean, it's, it's talked about and they are creating um, you know, and validating questionnaires in dissertations and things like that to actually be able to identify what are the constructs of diet culture. Culture is just, you know, it's the collection of knowledge and beliefs um, within a group. So it's everyone who's engaged in this industry. Technically, we're kind of like part of diet culture. And what, what's interesting is that everything that you've kind of um, described there as being, let's say, the common threads within it, uh, I would, and I would imagine that quite a few of the people listening to this would consider those to be the worst aspects of, let's say, the diet and nutrition industry. Like you said, mm -hmm. they the focus on defining some foods as good and some as bad. The, the you know, the, the concept of defining success or uh, as being, you know, thin or, or losing weight. Um, these are all things that, you know, any decent nutritionist, any nutritionist worth their salt would realize, you know, these, these are you know, terrible concepts that, you know, are very, very pervasive within the industry, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. you've got to admit that. Um, so 
on the other side of that, what does the anti-diet movement then stand for? Um, it's sort of the antithesis of that, that the, the, the choices we make around food and around movements are internally driven. So we decide how we want to eat and how we want to move based on what makes us feel best physically and that um, we, we also, because there's usually, um, you know, a system of self-care there, there's a framework that we are also making sure that our emotional uh, well-being needs are met as well. And so it, it gets to sort of um, looking at the person also as uh, a whole person, as the product of everything that they've experienced in their lives up to that point and realizing that, you know, there's, it's that, that shift away from that meritocratous idea of just work hard enough, you know, you'll have a smaller body, to um, your body size is in part uh, influenced by your lifestyle habits and in part influenced by genetics, and that we can't determine a person's health by just looking at them. Um, and so it's sort of the movement away from these, you know, external rules and beliefs about a lot, a lot of like, you know, what we should be doing and how we should look to a place of um, in, internally driven and internally regulated decisions um, and supporting, you know, self-acceptance and, um, you know, removing the, the moral attachment to food and to body size. Um, that being said, you know, just like we have extremes in, in diet culture, you know, because like, like you said, a lot of people are going to look at, think of those, you know, concepts of diet culture and be like, well, yeah, of course, like, I, I don't ascribe to those things. Um, that there might be extremes in the anti-diet culture community as well. There might be more extremist beliefs um, that might be, you know, some people might interpret that as people are healthy at every size instead of the, the true meaning of, of Hayes, which is pursuing health seeking behaviors of any size. So I think that's where we create some confusion is that, you know, these just aren't really well-defined terms. Um, and, and when we have a culture, you know, pro-diet culture, we have a system of beliefs um, and knowledge and anti-diet culture comes with its own system of beliefs and knowledge. And to some extent, beliefs are not always factual. You know, they're things that we choose to um, ascribe to, um, maybe regardless of the presence of strong evidence. It's, it's really more of an opinion, and it's a, it's a way that we um, express values through our thoughts about things. Um, I, and I think, I think kind of based on what you said there, one thing that's really worth pointing out at this point is that any movement is, is kind of defined by some of the loudest voices that represent that movement. And mm -hmm. individuals can interpret that differently within their movement. So mm -hmm. it can be very, very easy for somebody to say, okay, this person represents diet culture. This person represents the anti-diet movement. And if either of those individuals are coming across as very, very aggressive or very, very one-sided with their opinion, it's easy to associate that with either movement. So I think it's, it's kind of good... To, to kind of take a step back at times and just say, okay, look, we need to look at the movement as a whole as opposed to some of, let's say, the loudest and potentially most obnoxious voices that might be there um, as well. Uh, one thing that you touched on um, uh, as you were describing that is you mentioned the Hayes movement. And I was wondering if you could just give people, anybody who might not be familiar, what uh, a bit of a description of what the Hayes movement is and what differentiates it from the, the anti-diet movement as well. Yeah, so Hayes, is, it stands for health 
at every size. It's conflated quite often with um, the, the term healthy at every size. So some people have the belief that Hayes postulates that health is present at every size, and that's not the case. Or they postulate that Hayes is staunchly anti-weight loss um, in, in any form, you know, even unintentional weight loss, and that's also not the case. So Hayes is a movement that is focused on weight inclusivity, um, uh, respectful care, so on the part of coaches, on the part of, of practitioners. Um, it's about health enhancement, eating for well-being, and then, and then life-enhancing movement. So what we're trying to, um, I say we, what, <laughs> even though I'm, I guess, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not Hazeline, I, I, you know, because being in the gray area, like when I say those things, I'm like, that all makes so much sense. That's what we want for people, right? Like, that's what we want for our clients. We want them to be eating in ways that support their health and well-being. And we don't have to prescribe a diet for that. We can instead look at um, research on healthful dietary patterns, like the DASH diet or like the Mediterranean diet. It's a dietary pattern. It's not necessarily a diet that we would prescribe, but we would say, hey, it looks like people live a really long time if they eat diets that include vegetables and fruits and whole grains and, you know, fatty fish a few times a week. And not to say that we can't eat the, not those foods, but that's a great dietary pattern. And maybe a person would choose to pursue that. And when we say, you know, life-enhancing movement, yeah, we've got lots of data to show that uh, multiple modalities of physical activity seem to promote longevity and, and quality of life as well. So that's awesome. I think that we would all agree that, like, that's a cool thing to do. And then weight inclusivity and respectful care, this really gets to weight stigma and this sort of in, uh, bias against individuals in larger bodies based on a lot of these kind of older meritocratist beliefs. Um, and, and a lot of these are, are biases that we may not even have identified um, or they color our beliefs about people in larger bodies. You know, a lot of times people think like, oh, it just, you know, they, they just need to put in more effort and, you know, or it's just about self-control. And when we have these beliefs that are really not supported by the evidence, that changes the way that we might interact with a person in a larger body. In the same way that if we have beliefs about people of different ethnicities or cultures, it may change the way that we interact with them. So we can sort of think of weight bias as a, a body size specific form of uh, any other prejudice, age, gender, um, race. So, so it's, it runs parallel to those things. And, and, and there is a great deal of evidence that illustrates that weight stigma uh, has an impact on the health of individuals on larger bodies and also the treatment that they receive. So that's really huge because that really gets to the quality of care that those individuals will receive. And I think we can probably also agree that we want everyone to have access to quality health care. I mean, that, that benefits an entire society. So when we're looking at, at, at the, the paradigms of Hayes, um, I, I think that most people would agree, like, those are we're on board for that. Like that is about treating people well. It's about ensuring that they have quality and quantity of life. And unfortunately, I think it's maybe our misconceptions about Hayes or misconceptions about um, Hayes-aligned practitioners, or maybe we've had a difficult interaction with someone that turns us off to that idea, or we hear the term weight neutral and think that that means that there will be no weight change or that it means um, 
you know, that we're telling people not to pursue um, health-seeking behaviors or, you know, so weight neutral doesn't mean that weight loss will not occur. It just means that weight neutral approaches uh, encourage us to focus on the processes and the behaviors rather than just weight loss as the primary outcome. Weight loss might occur if a person uh, increases their, their consumption of fruits and vegetables and increases their physical activity and changes their energy balance, and that can occur, and that's fine, because now that's an outcome that is a result of positive health-seeking behaviors. That's really what they're getting at. It's not to say, you know, that, oh, it's, it's just stop exercising and, you know, don't change anything um, because the other side of this is, is body acceptance. And I think people also have kind of the um, inaccurate belief that body acceptance means that like, we're never going to change our bodies and we're just going to maintain our habits right now. But if the habits that we're engaging in right now are not supportive of our health and not life enhancing, and we continue to do those, that's not necessarily haze aligned because haze encourages us to engage in health-seeking behaviors. So acceptance just means that, okay, this is what's going on right now. That's really the first step in being able to change because I'm accepting, I'm acknowledging what the situation is right now. Now, if I choose to, I can make change. So you've, you've kind of given some really, really good, let's say, core concepts within haze. And like, I, I'm listening to those and I'm like, those all sound absolutely like wonderful. That's exactly what we should be aiming for. Um, and I wanted to ask, is there, so you've mentioned that within Hayes, they, there's a, they, they, there's this concept of a weight neutral approach mm-hmm. um, to seeking health, which I completely understand because it removes weight as a metric or a, a, de- a definer of health for mm-hmm. people, which is very, very beneficial for many, many people. I think within the anti-diet movement, is that the same? Is it a weight? Is it a weight neutral approach? Do they have the same opinion on weight loss? Is does weight loss fit into the anti diet movement at all? I think that the so the overarching, probably easiest answer would be to say, by and large, from what I've seen, individuals who identify as anti diet would find it unethical to encourage a person to intentionally pursue weight loss. That's, that's like my, I think that's the best answer I can give to that. Um, I don't know how, I can't speak for all practitioners and I'm not, um, you know, I can't even say that I'm an anti-diet practitioner because I coach individuals who want to achieve intentional weight loss. And so I think it would be unethical for me to say that I'm anti-diet or that I, you know, um, am, you know, a, a Hayes practitioner. Uh, so I try to be very careful about, um, you know, how I'm representing myself. Um, but I would say, yeah, from, from what I've read and, and what I understand, that um, because of the perceived uh, and this is, this is another thing that I've, that I've touched on, um, you know, in Instagram posts, that what we really seem to be debating is the uh, are the both the physical and the mental health effects of intentional weight loss that on one side we have individuals who see that there are documented potential benefits to weight loss 
whether it occurs intentionally or not, but certainly intentionally, it happens generally more more rapidly. Um, but but there are there are practitioners who um, and it is still and it is based on the evidence because yes, there are benefits potentially to weight loss. There are physical health benefits to weight loss. Um, but I think the key here is measuring those against the potential psychological effects of dieting for weight loss. Weight loss is independent from dieting for weight loss. <laughs> so weight loss, as I mentioned, can happen um, spontaneously. Um, so it can happen just because we engage in new behaviors and then, you know, our body weight settles in a new place. But it can also, it's obviously going to happen as, it can happen as a result of dieting for intentional weight loss, but sometimes a diet won't necessarily result in an energy deficit that results in weight loss. So weight loss and dieting are actually two different things. We often conflate those. And, and dieting with the intention of weight loss is also kind of even a separate thing from that. Um, and so there can be really deleterious negative mental health effects when a person is engaging in intentional weight loss. Not always. I think we just have to be transparent about what the risks and the benefits are. And part of the um, belief system in the anti-diet movement is based on the evidence uh, that, that long-term maintenance of weight loss, those success rates are incredibly low. And they really are. I mean, we really don't have any good evidence to show that, like, most people lose weight and then they keep it off forever. That's, that's really not the case. Uh, you know, maybe if we're being um, really generous based on some analyses, we could see maybe 20% of people will be able to lose, you know, 10% of their body weight and keep it off for more than a year. So those aren't super great um, statistics. And when we take it out to five years, most people are gaining back about 75% of the weight that they lost. There could also be, you know, potential deleterious effects of weight cycling. So when we see, um, you know, trends of, of weight loss and regain. Now, in, in uh, meta-analyses that I've, that I've looked at, they don't have solid evidence on that, but I've just seen some um, smaller studies looking at, you know, for example, body composition changes in female athletes who report more frequent dieting, that, that their body composition tends to, um, they tend to lose lean mass and gain more fat mass. So when we look at, you know, the potential effects of a weight-focused weight loss diet, Yes, at six months, they lose significantly more weight. And, um, but then when we take it out to a year or longer, the net weight loss between that versus a weight-neutral group, which also engages in behavior change but without the focus on weight as an outcome, the weight loss, the net weight loss is, is fairly similar. It's really not significantly different, you know. So when we're looking at, like, long-term, um, the success of a weight loss diet, if we judge it just based on weight loss, is fairly low. If we judge it based on markers of disease risk, cardiometabolic risk factors like blood pressure or um, if we're looking at like blood glucose regulation or changes in lipids, those tend to improve similarly in both groups. So we could say, well, you know, dietary change, whether we want to call that a diet colloquially, could potentially be beneficial. Maybe it results in weight loss, maybe not but it looks like something about making dietary changes is beneficial. Then we have to look at the psychological side of things. And individuals who report more frequent dieting behaviors tend to also report 
poor body image and poor psychological health and, and, and increased um, risk or, or um, frequency of sort of binge eating behaviors. Um, there are also pretty clear risks to having a restrictive um, mindset around food. So we're talking about restrictive restraint, that when we start having really strict food rules, black and white thinking, that really doesn't lead to great outcomes in, in, in any way. Like they don't have, you know, we don't see great psychological outcomes um, or, you know, successful or, or I should say, I shouldn't say successful or weight loss that is sustained. So when we're, I think when, when, we need, when we have a discussion about whether diets work or whether people should diet, we have to look at, you know, what are our beliefs about the benefits and risks psychologically and physically and then we as practitioners probably just have to take like our independent, like, okay, this is my stance. And um, maybe we can't speak for everyone. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to, but just to say, okay, this is, this is what I see. At the very least, I can inform my clients of the potential risks and benefits of these various approaches. I'll let them make the choice with informed consent. I think that's probably something that, that we might all have a, a, a you know, an obligation to do, you know, a responsibility to them. Absolutely. Um, I, I think one thing that you mentioned there is like, you said, you know, you're going to make the decision based on a number of different, you, like, again, I'm using this word and I, I don't like using this word because it does sound a bit wishy-washy, but you're taking a holistic approach. Yes. Um, uh, and like, I, I love holistic because it's exactly what I want to say, but unfortunately it's, <laughs> it's because so hippy-dippy, it, it feels terrible to use. Anyway, you're using a holistic approach to basically help your client improve their health. And there are, it, it is multifaceted. There are multiple areas that you need to consider. Mental, psychological health is one of those. Um, and I think if we look back on diet history or diet culture, there have, there have been and there, are, there continue to be atrocities committed within diet culture on how people look at food and are, are educated about food and you know like you, you only need to look at instagram to see some of the absolutely ridiculous concepts that are out there on diet and it, you know it's no surprise that there has that there is this movement that has arisen to kind of say hey hold on a second that's all bullshit that you're saying right there mm -hmm. but i feel just like anything you know an extreme like if, if on an uh, one side rises to fight another you, you often get the development of extremes yes. um and you kind of kind of like you said at the start of this we have like, this messy middle here people tend to avoid this area because it is messy it's difficult concept a different a difficult area to navigate and they prefer mm -hmm. to stay at their extreme and that's where we get to this side where if we're in the anti-diet movement, and I, I will say that I've got very, very little experience within this, but from my, my, my little bit of, let's say, the, 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 bit, the content that I have read within the um, anti-diet movement, there is a very much um, a, an opinion that any form of weight loss is damaging. Um, and I, I'm, I'm saying this because obviously as, as, as a scientist, as a nutritionist, I, I look at science a lot and I, I would say that, you know, there are some situations where if somebody is um, is suffering from, let's say, uh, morbid obesity, for example, um, and they're suffering from multiple comorbidities, you know, we're talking about like uh, diabetes and heart disease, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, dyslipidemia. We know for a fact that weight loss can help in that situation. Mm -hmm. But 
Would it be fair to say that the anti-diet movement would say that weight loss is not a useful approach for that, for, for helping somebody in that situation? I love that you asked this question because this gets to one of the common, like the really confusing um, points. Weight loss is not a behavior. It's an outcome. And so while we, it, so I think what, what, um, there might be us, there's two points of contention there, I think. One is, does that weight loss actually improve all of those comorbidities? Um, and there's evidence that, yes, that it would, and then there's evidence that maybe, maybe it would, um, but, you know, those correlates don't always, um, agree in the literature, you know, is it about, uh, you know, recorrelating those with BMI versus body fat? Um, and I'm not going to, I don't ascribe to either one of those. These are just the things that I've heard. These are what people, you know, kind of debate about. So does that weight loss actually improve that person's um, physical health? Does that weight loss um, positively or negatively affect their mental health? And then the other side of it is because weight loss is not a behavior, um, it's an outcome that Hayes, uh, if, I, if we can borrow from that, Hayes would recommend n not that weight loss is off the table, but that we don't say, hey, you need to lose weight. We say, what are some changes that we could make that would be supportive of your health, that would be supportive of your, your quality and quantity of life in terms of dietary changes and physical activity changes? Those are behaviors. So that's really, I think, the, the, the potential positive outcome here is that shift to behaviors because it is kind of discouraging to, to hear like, oh, okay, long term, diets don't really result in sustainable weight loss for the most part. Um, and so, okay, so maybe we, we, you know, and diet, it's so great that you said holistic too. Diet is another word that's been kind of like tossed around a little bit and we're all kind of like, uh, do I say that? Like, I don't, do you guys know what I mean when I say diet? Do you know what I mean when I say holistic? And people are like, no, I don't. Can you please tell me what you mean? Because it might be something different from what I mean. So if we say, you know, a restrictive diet that is not sustainable for us long-term does not work, we probably can all agree with that. It, we can probably also all agree with the fact that, yes, an energy deficit will result in fat loss, but there's so much more that goes into an energy deficit than just move more and eat less. I mean, that is reductionism to, that's, it's, it's to, to the point of almost being, like, it's just not helpful. And it's helpful in terms of helping people know that, like, hey, um, you know, the, like, just changing your diet doesn't necessarily lead to weight loss because you need to have an energy deficit. Okay, that's helpful. Um, but, you know, we still have to talk about it with, with greater context than that. But, yeah, so if a person, um, you know, is in a place where their lifestyle, where their habits, their behaviors have put their health at risk, then in my opinion, the best way that we can help them is to help them determine which behaviors could reduce their, their, their health risks. And since weight loss is not a behavior, it's not super helpful to say lose weight. Okay, that could happen as an outcome, but what are the things that we can do instead? Like how can we look at changing your dietary pattern? How can we look at, at increasing or changing your, your movement? Um, how can we look at helping you meet your emotional and mental needs 
so that you can more readily make these changes. That's, I think, the conversation that we really need to be having. Um, and and it's, it's one that gets put, you know, on the back burner so that we can argue about whether or not diets work. It's like, well. And I think that's a, that's a very, very good point, what you said there, because this one common denominator um, of, let's say, uh, of the health-oriented diet coaches, and I'm using health-oriented diet coaches to, to separate certain individuals from people who are just out there and saying, you need to lose weight, calorie deficit, that's it, you're good, um, and who are focusing exclusively on weight loss. So a common denominator between those health-oriented diet coaches and anti-diet coaches is that there's an aim to improve people's eating habits and diet quality, and health overall through exercise as well. Um, so it's improving these behaviors, like you said. So at the end of the day, some people might say it's a bit of a pedantic argument to say that these are two different approaches because, you know, but at the end of the day, you're telling somebody, okay, this is how we're going to change your behaviors, you know, and it might be, we're going to get you walking more frequently. We're going to get, find you an activity that you enjoy that you can do a few times a week. We're going to find some vegetables that you like so we can increase the amount of vegetables. You know, it, it might be, we want to add some whole grains to your diet. Neither side would listen to those and say, oh, they're, those are wrong. Those are actually the, the, the things that I do with my clients. It's just if you say that one person is looking at a metric of weight loss that kind of almost separates the two sides. Would, would that be right? Um, I think to some extent. I think that, you know, maybe the part of the problem is just like having, you know, like we have in the U.S. like this bipartisan system where we just have like, it's a two-party system. You know, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. And like, yeah, realistically, we have like libertarians and, you know, we have like, I don't know what else, uh, Tea Party or something. So we do have more parties. But it's just that like these are the two most widely represented. And because people don't, they, people want their vote to count they don't usually vote for a third party candidate. They'll just be like, well, that's like throwing my vote out. So I'm going to go re Republican or Democrat. And so, you know, people do, I think the same thing with like, well, you know, I can't really say that I'm like anti-diet because I help people with intentional weight loss. I don't want to say that I'm pro-diet because that, you know, those people want to do fad diets and, you know, so, but I've got to pick a side. Um, and, and so maybe it gets to, you know, a, slightly different system of beliefs or like attention to different beliefs. So with the anti-diet movement, I see a lot more focus on, um, you know, like body acceptance and that's so huge. And I think that that would be something that would be beneficial for all sides. But unfortunately I think people who, um, you know, even if they have good intentions and like they want, they want to help people, you know, have health that maybe if they have the belief that like, that is inextricably linked to fat loss or to weight loss that like, you know, if a person doesn't lose weight, then like, you know, have they really improved? Um, maybe that belief is something that kind of um, silos individuals and separates us. Like one believes that like, you know, weight loss kind of is supposed to occur um, or that if we accept our bodies, that means that we stop, you know, trying to change them. Whereas on the other side, it's like body acceptance is different from, you know, trying to like, you can accept your body and also it will change. 
but maybe not necessarily that you have control over changing it. Um, so I, I, this is kind of a long-winded answer to say I think there are more differences than that, but I, I want to emphasize that you pointed out that there are, there's more overlap than I think people realize. And it's because we're, we're, set, we're focusing so much on our differences and trying to like convince the other side, you know, like, well, you're, you're wrong and I'm right. Like, look at all, you know, we, we probably could have a better discussion if we come to the center and say, like, can we create like a Venn diagram and just look at what we have in the middle just to start out, you know, like just start from there and then come up with a shared, maybe a shared purpose. And that might be the other challenge because when we are coming from a place of, you know, beliefs that dieting is harmful and that that creates harm and I want to be an ethical practitioner, then I say I'm not going to coach people for intentional dieting because I think that creates harm. And on the other side, we have a practitioner that says I, based on the evidence, have, you know, and they both can be based on evidence, like one saying I'm looking at harm from a psychological aspect. The other practitioner says from a physical standpoint, I think that, that maintaining a high level of adiposity that creates harm. And so I'm not going to tell people to do that because I want to be an ethical practitioner. So if we both want to be ethical practitioners, that's a shared purpose. Now, how can we have a discussion about that going forward? And, and I think having that conversation, that discussion is, is vital and it will be vital at some point. But one thing that I see, um, or I, I see that's quite common when I, when I read any content uh, in the anti-diet sphere is that it seems that a, a lot of practitioners within that area um, seem to be quite open about uh, speaking about having, let's say, eating disorders in the past, okay? Mm -hmm. And obviously, an eating disorder is a significant, um, you know, they, they are mental health issues. And they that having something like that can obviously contribute to somebody um, developing an attitude that can be completely against dieting because obviously dieting in the past has caused so much harm and suffering for that person that you know any thought of the concept of dieting it's something that immediately stirs up anger and resentment and something yeah. i'm going to fight against this i've suffered because of this and i'm not going to allow anybody else to suffer the way i have and i think that is completely valid and understandable mm -hmm. but i think that that may potentially be a barrier to um certain individuals within the anti-diet movement looking at any benefits that could be had from a weight loss. Uh, not, 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 and I don't even like the idea of saying a weight loss focused approach, but an approach that may involve weight loss and mm -hmm. as, a, like, as an endpoint to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, is that a, a possibility for, for why there might be, well, one of the reasons why there might be a lack of discourse between the two sides? Oh, I think so. I mean, when we... Um, as practitioners, you know, we all have to be aware of our biases. And I know I have them, you know. And um, when we work with certain groups or when we've had a really formative experience, like, have, you know, like living through an eating disorder, um, that that will shape our entire, you know, perspective. It, it, it puts a, a, sh a color on the, the lens of our sunglasses, you know, so I view the world through orange sunglasses, you might view them through blue sunglasses, and we look at the same thing, and we see, we see it in different tones. So, you know, if an individual, you know, has been um, 
harmed by what they perceive to be diet culture or the culture of dieting. They, I think it's natural, uh, you know, that because we are human and we care about other humans, that we would want to protect others from going through that experience. And so, and I think it actually, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think, even to think of this on the, on the other side of things. Um, you know, quite often we interact with other, we, with, with individuals um, in ways that, that might mirror or reflect the relationships that we have with ourselves, and so I think it's worth looking at our beliefs about, you know, if we have beliefs about individuals in, in larger bodies or just any other individual um, around, you know, your beliefs about that person, where are they coming from? So if you have the belief that, like, people in larger bodies are lazy and they're not putting in enough effort or if you believe that, you know, um, or if you're, you find yourself to be very judgmental of other individuals, it might be a sign that, those are things that you feel self-conscious about within yourself. That if you're judging others, if you don't like something about a person, um, that seems to really trigger you, that maybe you have some beliefs about yourself that are uncomfortable to sit with. And maybe um, by telling yourself that it's just a matter of effort, maybe that makes it a little bit more, you know, um, within your control. And, and so I think it's just worth looking at why we have these beliefs. I mean, I can tell you from experience Yes, I went through, you know, I had an eating disorder and I went through treatment and I have been in different sizes of bodies and um, those experience absolutely, they absolutely shape the way that I interact with clients. And we can use that in a really beautiful way because that can help us to empathize with other individuals who might have gone through something similar. But it can also, you know, kind of maybe create a little bit of... Um, um, defensiveness or, you know, yeah, we can be triggered or be a little bit dogmatic about some of our beliefs because we cling to them so tightly because they are internalized as just part of our core, you know, so I'm like, oh, I want to help people. I really, I'm a helper. That's what I do. And I, I don't want people to be harmed, but I also have to be careful about, you know, am I looking at it through a lens of everyone's at risk? Everyone's at risk of, of, you know, going through a diet, and that's really not the case. There are plenty of individuals who will pursue intentional weight loss, and they will lose the desired amount of weight, and then they maintain it for a long period of time, and they feel great about it, and that's okay. Um, so I think we also have to, you know, acknowledge that, that those realities exist and that we have biases and a specific perspective um, that we can, like I said, you know, use in a really beneficial way um, as long as we're cognizant about it. And I think that's a really, and again, this is why, you know, I'm having this conversation with you, Gabrielle. Uh, that's a really balanced way of, of looking at the situation um, because you're, you're, you're quite aware that there are multiple different approaches and different ways of helping an individual. And every situation, every individual is going to be quite different. Um, and I like, I, I think it's really, really important to be open to, you know, different ways of helping somebody. When you are within, when you're stuck within a certain, and you, you mentioned the word dogma yourself, when you're stuck within a certain dogma, um, be it the, let's say, the diet culture, the pro-diet, pro-weight loss as a metric culture, that dogma, uh, or if you're in the anti-diet dogma, you've got set rules that you'll say, I am never going to do this, or I'm never going to do this. And I think that's quite unhelpful 
because you know these are all different tools that we can use to help people at the at the end of the day the, the goal is to is to help somebody yeah. become healthier or the, the healthiest version of themselves and i think the more tools that we have and the more that we can draw on the better we are as practitioners that's that's just um my my thoughts on that and, and the reason i'm saying that is because I, and i have heard some um individuals and it's very important that i say individuals within the anti-diet movement say things like anybody who has had success with a a diet long-term success has only done it through um disordered eating practices and i i think that's unfair to a lot of individuals who may have had success i and and that's not to say that i do not believe that uh diet culture is very very much responsible for causing disordered eating in a an enormous amount of people but i think it's unfair to say that it causes it in them all if you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely um, yeah mm-hmm. um if if we were to look at all of the let's say if we were to draw that venn diagram and we were to look at some of the similarities between these two movements between anti-diet and diet culture or let's say actually let's not even look at diet culture let's look at health oriented you know diet coaches mm-hmm. what are some of the things that what are the what's the common ground that they share what are the things that we can take as practitioners or even as individuals that are beneficial for helping people improve their health through diet and you know to, through exercise as well or mm-hmm. and also through the way we think about our diets and we think about ourselves. Mm. I think one would be autonomy. So when we're talking about our intention to help our clients and we want to help our clients, you know, meet their goals. Their goals is the is the emphasis there. You know, we have to let our clients make informed choices. and that mean that may mean that a client is informed of the risks and benefits of various approaches to intentional weight loss and they choose to pursue intentional weight loss at that point i think any one of us um the another common thread would be that you know it, we we are allowed to have boundaries as practitioners we're allowed to um abide by our own set of ethics and if we determine that we we are not a good fit for that client then we can say I respect your decision and I see what you would like to do. I don't feel comfortable, you know, working with you, but I know a practitioner who would be right up your alley. And and so we could potentially ally ourselves with practitioners of a variety of different um approaches and beliefs and then allow the client to go to the one that is the best fit for them. Um so I think that's one of the things that, you know, potentially is maybe not yet an area of overlap but hopefully would be because i think at the center yeah like you said we want to help people you know we want to help people meet their goals it's just that we have different beliefs about the potential risks i think of of the intentional weight loss um behaviors that might need to occur so um I I think that that's that's probably one of the biggest things. I mean it's really just, you know, we have this common thread of wanting to help people. Um the other thing is that, you know, we are I think I'm seeing a shift more toward also looking at behaviors rather than outcomes, you know, and looking at how we can change 
lifestyles and letting sort of the, you know, the weight change might happen. Um, and looking at, like you said, in people in a more holistic way, that I think that's one of the nice, um, even though, yeah, it's created a lot of kind of discourse from the conversations that are occurring, people are realizing that there is so much more to weight loss and to food intake than just calories in versus calories out. And we are expanding our um, ideas about potential um, interventions from, you know, oh, modifying the external food environment or, you know, reduce hyperpalatability, you know, reduce palatability of foods. And, you know, those are practical and they have a lot of merit. But what about, you know, when people are eating because they're lonely or bored or, you know, and, and then or they can't control their external food environment. Now we're starting to really look at how we can help people change their internal frameworks as well. Um, and I think that's another thing. You know, we have that in common. Like we want to help people feel better overall. It's just that we kind of have, I think, different ideas about what might actually help them feel better. And again, we need to let the clients decide what's going to help them feel better. Not to say that we can't have really productive conversations with them about maybe some of their internalized beliefs from diet culture, um, because there are plenty of people who have the belief that they will be more acceptable, more liked, more loved, more attractive to their spouses, happier if they're in a smaller body. And I think it's really worth examining where that belief comes from and maybe helping them um, unpack that a little bit and explore it and see if that's really their their goal. If, if having a smaller body is 100% really what's going to um, meet their needs, that's great. And so, so one of the questions that I like to ask clients is, okay, if we make that change, what needs are going to be met? And then we just can have a talk about that. And sometimes they realize like, oh, I had different needs. That's not actually going to meet them and we'll do something different. So again, it really, I think, has to be client-centered. And, and, you know, we have that, I think, in common in, in both, in all sides of the industry, hopefully, um, that, you know, that the client is the one that's deciding what's best for them based on, on good information. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you, you've spoken about a, a lot of things there that I just realized, my God, we could go into a, a complete, uh, <laughs> a complete segue just talking about, you know, um, our food environment at the moment, but uh, I'm mm-hmm. not going to, uh, I'm not going to pressure you <laughs> into that at all. Just, I'm going to keep it in mind for a, a, another sure. podcast with you, Gabrielle. Um, Gabrielle, this, this whole topic, this whole area is, it's potentially huge and there's a lot of stuff to unpack and there's a lot of different things to take into consideration. Um, I, I really hope that, you know, anybody listening that they'll have gathered from this that, you know, it's it's not, or at least it shouldn't be a, a them or us situation. Um, and, and that's something that we have to be very, very cautious of mm-hmm. in anything, but like in, in nutrition, it's just very, very easy to see different camps forming, you know, like, different camps with different diets and different approaches. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's, it's, it's necessary. And I think like, you know, you, like you discussed here, it, it shuts down a lot of discourse that could be had and a lot of productive discourse that could be had. Um, when at the end of the day, we're just trying to help people be healthier. Um, but I, I'm just, I want to say that what you're putting out in your Instagram or on your Instagram at the moment is really, really valuable. And it's a topic that I feel is not spoken about enough because we've got, camps that are either pro-diet or anti-diet and you're there in that messy middle you know fighting the good fight in my opinion and and i just want to say thank you for that 
um, for one thing. If if anybody wants to find out more about you and what you do, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, so they can find me on Instagram at Vitamin PhD. I also have my website, vitaminphdnutrition.com. Um, we have the Bridging the Gap series up there if you guys want to peruse that. Um, also follow Shannon Beer underscore and Powerlifter Dietitian because they are my collaborators on Bridging the Gap and they are also fantastic individuals that are talking about, um, yeah, messy middle and, and topics that are really um, not uh, discussed enough, I think, in the industry. Um, and I try to answer all DMs. Um, and, you know, even if you want to yell at me or whatever, um, I, I totally, I'm totally here for it. I am ready. Um, I was asked by a colleague, you know, are, are you ready to be in, in that place? Um, and, you know, for what people might say and whatnot. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm, I'm out here. Like I'm, I'm in the arena, you know, I, I want to, I want to just create conversation and I might not say things in the best way. I might not always be correct. I'm going to make mistakes a hundred percent. But, you know, even in doing this, I hope that I can model that what I'm, I'm hoping is that p other people will just kind of be brave and like courageous and step out here and talk about these things as well. Um, and can I, can I get my quote from, from my Brene Brown book too? Okay, of course. Okay. All right. So I want to share this with you guys. This is Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. This is a really fantastic book. And, and man, like if you're, if you're in the messy middle, if you're anywhere in the diet industry and you read this, you're going to be like, there are so many um, overlaps. And I had mentioned this quote the other day in my IG live where I interviewed Dan, but I want to share it here too. She says, the sorting we do to ourselves and to one another is at best unintentional and reflexive. At worst, it is stereotyping that dehumanizes. The paradox is that we all love the ready-made filing system, so handy when we want to quickly characterize people, but we resent it when we're the ones getting filed away. So I just can't think of something that's, like, more fitting than that. You know, we, we don't want to um, feel the shame that can come with sort of the label of, of either, you know, diet culture or anti-diet culture. And unfortunately, shame is something that we kind of do to each other to try and, like, create change. Um, and it's, it's just not super effective. And so the, the better job we can do to reduce the shame that comes with saying like, oh, you know, maybe I caused harm or like maybe I was wrong about some things and just say, hey, I made a mistake and I didn't say this in the best way. And, you know, can we can we start over again? Can we improve from where we left off? I think the more that we can do that, the more productive our conversations will be um, because we won't have that need to, like, put up our armor and be like, this, these are my opinions and, and, like, this is right and you definitely have to be wrong. Otherwise, I might be a little bit wrong. It's okay if we're, like, a, a little bit wrong and a little bit right and maybe we can, you know, improve from there. I, I think being able to admit when we're wrong is hugely important and then less use of labels um, and less... Less assigning of labels is uh, is a really really beneficial approach. Um, uh, thank you, Gabrielle, uh, for sharing that with us, and um, thank you for for joining us tonight. And hopefully, uh, I'll be able to get you back on here soon because um, you know you you you've been on this podcast twice now, like so you're uh, you're, you're you're a regular at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's get you get on again soon. So uh, Gabrielle, thank you very very much again, and um, have a great evening. Okay. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. 
And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.